0: This year, a moon rush will begin in earnest. Countries and companies are racing to explore our closest neighbor in space. But a half century since our last visit, how can astronauts sustain operations on the moon? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, an editor at The Economist. Today, we're investigating the new age of lunar exploration that's dawning, from the missions to watch out for to the geopolitical jostling that comes in its wake. And we'll look at an underappreciated challenge that NASA faces in its future journeys to Mars.
1: Astronauts must survive not only deep space, but one another's company. A mission to the red planet, Mars, is going to be long, it's going to be tough. The missions will last for up to three years at a time, so people are going to need to get on.
0: But first... The year 2022 promises to be another extraordinary one for space exploration. From a trip to Jupiter's icy moons, to powerful space probes that will investigate asteroids, many ambitious missions will blast off. Though perhaps the busiest celestial body will be the Earth's moon.
2: There's an unprecedented number of lunar missions that are planned for this year.
0: Benjamin Sutherland writes about science and technology for The Economist.
2: Not just the usual players like the United States and other main spacefaring powers, but also South Korea, Japan, even a non in Israel, the United Arab Emirates. All these countries are, are planning uh, moon missions.
0: So if lots of countries are getting in on the action, which missions are you most excited about?
2: Well, the, the most exciting set of missions is known as Artemis, and that's a, a NASA program, which in a sense is kind of a second stage after the Cold War Apollo missions. That's one
1: small step for man,
2: one giant leap for mankind. The thing is that basically what's happened in the last 10, even 20 years is that the United States and, and its partners, but not only, also Russia, China and, and some other powers have in a sense kind of conquered low Earth orbit, where we have the International Space Station, most of Earth's satellites, remote sensing satellites.
0: Liftoff of the Proton rocket and the Zarya control module, the International Space Station is underway.
2: And the new frontier, if you will, is to push things farther out. And that's what people are referring to as cislunar space, which essentially means the space between Earth and the Moon. So we're seeing a huge expansion of the volume of regular human activity in space. And this year is is really the year that's going to mark it off. NASA alone is sponsoring at least 18 missions to the moon, many of them to drop off equipment, supplies, kit that will be used by astronauts in subsequent years as part of the Artemis program.
3: 50 years after Apollo, we have a new program named after Apollo's twin sister. That's Jim
0: Bridenstine, the former head of NASA, speaking in 2019 when he announced the
3: aims of Artemis. And in this new program, a sustainable return to the moon, for the first time in human history, we're going to have the opportunity to send not just men to the moon, but also women to the moon.
0: The ambition of Artemis is to create a long-term human presence on the lunar surface. A key part of the mission is a space station called Gateway, which will follow an elliptical halo orbit around the
3: moon. We're looking at reusing as much of the architecture as possible. That's why we're building the gateway. It's a reusable command and service module. And what we'd like to have is reusable landers that go back and forth from the gateway to the surface of the moon. So the moon is the proving ground. It's not just about how to get there, but once you're there, how do you live and work using the resources of another world? And then of course, taking all of that technology and all of that capability to Mars, that's the goal. So what we're doing is we're going to Mars, and the moon is the way to get to Mars.
0: Benjamin, a key part of the Artemis program is Gateway, the Lunar Space Station. But keeping it running sounds very complicated.
2: It's extremely complicated. In fact, if you think about the International Space Station, which has been continuously inhabited by astronauts for 21 years, the lunar space stations that are in the works, and essentially the United States and its partners are planning two, one of them is called Gateway, and that's planned for lunar orbit, and another one called Artemis Base Camp, which is planned for the surface of the moon. It's not at all like operating in low Earth orbit. One of the big differences is that around Earth there's a magnetic field which greatly reduces the amount of radiation and, uh, of course, the danger that that can do, not just to people but also to equipment. So, components that work, you know, in low Earth orbit or all the way out to geostationary orbit, nearly 36,000 kilometers up, they don't work in deeper space. They'll get fried. The radiation is too intense. So, You can't just repurpose those components. They have to be redesigned. You need heavier shielding. The difficulty of operating with people in those environments is immense. In fact, to give you an idea, the Artemis III mission, the the first manned mission back to the moon since 1972, is currently slated to launch in about 2025. That date could get pushed back. NASA is thinking that the astronauts on that mission for six days on the moon, they only may manage two moonwalks. So the technology, the depressurization, using the spacesuits, and all of that is so incredibly complicated. This is not as easy as it might seem when you see video of uh, astronauts floating around on the, the International Space Station.
0: So that's what NASA's doing, along with its commercial and international collaborators. But last year on the show, we discussed China's space ambitions. How do they compare to America's now?
2: Well, China's ambitions are big and they are growing. Not not only do they have a space station in low Earth orbit, which, depending on how you define fully operational, will quite likely become fully operational within the next year or so. 13th,
4: I'm Beijing.
2: They are also planning two moon stations, basically one lunar station in orbit and another one for the surface of the moon. With Russia, they're looking for other partners. And uh, now they're probably not going to be moving as fast as the United States and its partners. In the Artemis program, uh, they think they will probably have astronauts there, not before 2036, but but these are still ambitious plans for China and Russia.
0: Now, it's certainly a busy time for moon exploration, but if America, China, and Russia are serious about creating longer-term bases on the moon, how will they get the required materials and resources up there, like water?
2: The idea is to use as much of the in-situ resources available up there that you can. And in fact, the moon is a lot more attractive now than it was just a couple decades ago because there's been so many discoveries of water and other materials, and there's been research as to how those materials could be used, which make a lot of these missions seem a lot more feasible. Water, of course, it's in the form of ice, but uh, you can drink that, and then using electricity, you can process it into hydrogen which can be used as rocket fuel oxygen which is part of the rocket fuel system and of course you need oxygen to breathe. so that's one side of it and then structures need to be built also to shield astronauts and any kind of installations from radiation. And there's a lot of research going into using 3D printing and different forms of construction technology to use the regolith, which means kind of the loose lunar soil, and to turn it into a building material. So that's all pretty exciting, too.
0: I'm totally starstruck, but it raises a question. Who owns lunar resources like regolith?
2: Well, there's been a lot of debate about that. The United States has always maintained that the resources can be used by whoever goes there. Uh, The United States has essentially set that precedent by bringing moon rocks back from the moon during the Apollo missions. A lot of those were given to other countries and research teams around the world.
4: This sample is a small part of the lunar material distributed among 142 investigating teams from 10 countries and the United States.
2: A few years ago, uh, China itself brought back some moon
1: rocks.
2: But you do have some groups in uh, Russia and other countries, especially non spacefaring countries, who say, hey, the 1987 United Nations Outer Space Treaty says that outer space should be for the benefit and in the interests of all humankind. And so they've used that kind of line, which is a little ambiguous in the treaty to say you should pay us if you're going to be going there and doing missions that have a commercial nature and you're somehow making money Well, you need to be sharing that with non space faring countries and that idea at first blush, it seems kind of outrageous, but it's proven to be a little bit of a diehard idea and it, it hasn't really been going away, at least entirely.
0: Benjamin, hold on a second. Other countries want spacefaring nations to somehow compensate them for the raw materials that they are able to take off of the moon for their space programs?
2: Yes. In fact, it's a position that has said you should be paying us or somehow compensating us. It wouldn't necessarily have to be financial compensation. One one option that's being discussed is that spacefaring countries would provide free training or technology transfers or things like that to other countries as, as a form of compensation for the fact that they're using water on the moon or rocks on the moon and uh, another non-space-faring country isn't accessing and therefore isn't benefiting from.
0: But what about the other side of the coin, for so to speak? What about the countries that want to capitalize on the moon economy?
2: Well, there's a number of countries that are really encouraging the moon economy. They see this as economically lucrative, even if not so much today, but in coming decades. And those are specifically the countries that have put in place legislation to clarify, saying if you make it to the moon and you're operating there, you certainly are allowed under the laws of the country authorizing your launch because each country has to authorize any launch taking place from its territory. Um, that you can use these resources. And the main countries that have taken steps in that direction are the United States, Japan, and Luxembourg, which, of course, is a small country, but it has a disproportionately sized space economy due to legislation they've put in place to encourage spacefaring companies to set up shop in Luxembourg.
0: So what practically can happen? What are some of the pragmatic activities that people are taking?
2: Well, on one side, you've got the the kind of bureaucratic response. There's a talk shop called the Hague Space Resources Governance Working Group that has been meeting regularly for five years to talk about what should or shouldn't be done with space resources. Who knows how that's going to turn out. But the United States and some other countries have decided to be a little bit more hands-on. And NASA in particular has signed a very curious contract with a Colorado company called Lunar Outpost. Lunar Outpost wants to kind of be a services provider on the moon, operating robotics equipment and communications equipment as part of NASA's Artemis missions. But in a side deal, they're also sending up a robot which is going to have a shovel and be able to move regolith. It's going to be scooping up some of the lunar surface. It's going to take a picture of the regolith that it's scooped up, send it to NASA, and that, NASA claims, will officially transfer ownership of that regolith to nasa now nasa's only paying 80 cents for that scoop of regolith so it's really a, a symbolic action which
4: we kind of like to say is you know like the best dollar that nasa's ever spent
2: i spoke with the firm's head of operations julian cyrus and he made the point that this will be the first sale of space resources ever conducted
4: the concept for that is to prove out the legal and procedural framework for the sale of space resources. You know, all we're doing is collecting the small amount of regolith, um, taking proof of collection, so a photo, uh, and then sending that back along with our location to NASA. And then at that point in time, the the full transaction will have occurred. And so this, is, this will be the first actual sale of space resources. And so this is kind of just setting that precedent for, you know, future transactions.
2: Not to mention an excellent marketing coup for his company.
0: So it seems like the moon rush brings plenty of opportunity, scientifically and commercially, but also competition. Some might say it's a new space race. How do you see it?
2: It actually is. Uh, During the Cold War, the space race was essentially United States against the Soviet Union. We know how that turned out. This time around, the space race has a couple different dimensions. One of them is you've got the Western-led model, which is more governments working in tandem with companies. The idea being that companies spend money more efficiently than governments do. Then you've got the authoritarian regimes led by Russia and China, as far as space is concerned, wanting to get back to the moon, show what they can do, and also establish military capabilities in space, but from a more government model. So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect is seeking military advantage. The DARPA, uh, a research agency of the Pentagon, is referred to cislunar space as essentially the new high ground. One of the guys I interviewed, Larry Wartzel, former head of America's China Commission, which is a congressionally mandated body to study security risks, he is worried that Chinese military spacecraft may manage to gain supremacy in cislunar space, essentially space above uh, the geostationary orbits and, and lower orbits that are commonly used. It would be like having a cavalry or artillery start shooting at you from behind and you didn't know they were there. So it's not just a symbolic who's better, who's got the best technology. There are military advantages to being able to operate throughout cislunar space to be able to know what satellites or other types of spacecraft are operating in these areas the united states relies on satellites more than any other country for the operation of its military and intelligence and reconnaissance systems it's pretty hard to operate a global navy if you don't have satellites if those satellites were to start getting destroyed In other words, the United States has more to to lose in space than any other power. And so none of us know how this is going to play out, but I'd say it's a fair bet that the next act is not going to be boring.
0: Benjamin, this all sounds out of this world. Thank you very much.
2: It absolutely is. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: Missions to the Moon hope to prove that technologically, scientists can sustain life on Mars. But that won't be the only hurdle to overcome. Coming up, will missions to the Red Planet require a new breed of astronauts?
4: Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA Copyright
0: 2024.
2: 4, 3, 2, 1, zero. all engine running. Lift off. We have a lift off. 32 minutes past the hour.
1: Okay, so just imagine this. You're 10 months into the first human mission to Mars. You're in your space capsule, cooped up, and the captain is really starting to get on your nerves. Alok Jha is a science correspondent for The Economist. She's always talking about herself. Never asks you how you feel or asks whether you want to do something. And recently she's developed this very annoying habit of checking all your work, making sure you've dotted all your I's, crossed all your T's. How on earth are you gonna survive the next eight months without tearing each other apart? Believe it or not, NASA takes this question very seriously. Now, if you think of the archetypal astronaut from the beginning of the space age, what what comes to mind? Usually it's the daring explorer bursting with bravado, almost dangerous bravado. Tom Wolfe, the celebrated author, wrote about it in his book, The Right Stuff. There was a 1983 film adaptation of it.
3: Sounds dangerous. It's very dangerous. Count me in.
1: Nowadays, astronauts need all of that classic daring do But they also need interpersonal skills as well to survive. A mission to the red planet, Mars, is going to be long. It's going to be tough. The missions will last for up to three years at a time. So people are going to need to get on.
4: There is going to be some conflict. There's no doubt about it. The question is not to avoid the conflict, but to manage the conflict.
1: That's Nosheer Contractor. He's a behavioral scientist at Northwestern University in Illinois. He works with NASA to figure out how to make crews in space work well together.
4: That's when NASA came to us and said, is there something from the social sciences that tell us what is the magic chemistry of who's likely to work well with whom and what do we need to put together? And for years now, especially in the field of psychology, there's been an enormous amount of work that has tried to look at, you know, what makes team chemistry
1: NASA's first astronauts were pulled from the military because they needed people who were brave enough and cool-headed enough to sit on top of these experimental rockets and be shot into space. No one knew whether it was possible to shoot people up into space and bring them back safely again. So that's a specific type of person. One of the space agency's first staff psychiatrists actually said that these people were full of, quote, narcissism, arrogance, and interpersonal insensitivity. Now, NASA can't design humans like they design their spacecraft, but they are building computer models to see how different groups of people might interact with each other when confined together. They've got several experiments, the most prominent of which is called the Human Exploration Research Analogue, HERA. They undertake mock space missions. So anywhere from a few days to a few months, they take three or four people and lock them inside this pretend space capsule, and in one experiment in Hera, they took several crews of four people and they participated in a mock 30-day mission to an asteroid called Geographos. They had to deal with communications delays and towards the end of the mission, even 24 hours without sleep. share Contractor told me once that Hera is the ultimate human Petri dish. These experiments have been going on for several years now. Lots of data has been collected and it's given NASA and its social scientists quite a lot of insights into how to build teams properly. One of the first and most important things that they found was that a team of experts doesn't actually create an expert team. Individual personality traits, people's values, and a lot of other characteristics also shape the way that team members relate to each other, the way they think and feel about what they're doing. And ultimately it's a combination of all of those things that will actually make the team work. The good news is that you can actually design a team to do well and create chemistry by picking the kinds of people that you have in it. And you can even predict in the future who's gonna get on with who and try and head those things off at the pass.
4: And one of the concepts in psychology that has been well established over a period of time is that people vary a lot in the extent to which they are capable of self-monitoring. So what is self-monitoring? Self-monitoring is the ability of an individual to look around in their social setting and get a good read on what people are thinking of them, how people are reacting to them. So they're monitoring themselves by reading how other people are observing them and how other people are interacting with them. Well, it turns out that the people who are high in self-monitoring are also people who other people enjoy working with. So if somebody's a high self-monitor, the odds are pretty good that people are going to say they enjoy working with this person. The odds are also pretty good that others are not going to find this person as a hindrance.
1: Communication also is important, and there's been some good past examples of why. At the end of December in 1973, the three members of Skylab, which was an American space station, decided to stop contact with their ground control. and They also refused to do any of the assigned tasks that they had. People described it as the first strike in space. The better way of describing it was a sort of a work slowdown. They just sort of decided to do their own thing for a little while, which is highly unusual for a space mission. The crew of Skylab had been talking to each other and had become really, really frustrated with their workload. They'd complained about it bitterly, to each other but people on earth had no idea that they were really upset that lack of communication between ground control and the people up there it really eroded the trust and the relations between the two teams now if all of this chat of being stuck inside small spaces for a long time sounds familiar well i mean it does have a bit of a chilling ring of familiarity to us
4: all of this has lots and lots of benefits back on Earth, especially coming at a time where, in many ways, catalyzed by the pandemic, almost all of our interactions are now happening online, where we leave digital trails, digital traces, digital exhaust. And so that's the kind of stuff that we are now able to use to see how we could predict what happens to crew relations.
1: But perhaps the most important thing we can learn from research into mock space missions is the importance of humour. When scientists look at these mock space missions, and also people living in Antarctica over the winter, they found that the way that those places work best is when there's somebody who can act as a clown. So at home, if things are going badly, then these years of NASA research in planning trips to Mars, the insight you should glean from the whole thing, just tell a joke. So, What's the best way to get to Mars? Planet. Please don't throw me off the spacecraft.
0: Thanks to our science correspondent, Alok Jock. And for more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. Each week, our global network of correspondents distill the most important trends to prepare you for our chaotic world. And don't forget to pick up the latest edition of our annual supplement on what to expect in the new year, called The World Ahead 2022. To subscribe, go to economist.com podcastoffer podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. And don't forget to tell them, happy new year. Thank you for listening to Babbage. This episode was produced by Jason Hoskin and William Warren. Mixing and sound design was by Nico Rofast. And the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Kenneth Kukie. And from Mars, this is The Economist.